Chapter 9 of A Strange Manuscript Found in a Copper Cylinder This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eddie Winter A Strange Manuscript Found in a Copper Cylinder by James DeMille Chapter 9 The Cavern of the Dead on going forth into the outer grotto, I saw the table spread with a sumptuous repast, and the apartment in a blaze of light. Alma was not here, and though some servants made signs for me to eat, yet I could not until I should see whether she was coming or not. I had to wait for a long time, however, and while I was waiting the chief entered, shading his eyes with his hand from the painful light. He bowed low with the most profound courtesy, saying, Salonla, to which I responded in the same way. He seemed much pleased at this, and made a few remarks which I did not understand, whereupon, anxious to lose no time in learning the language, I repeated to him all the words I knew, and asked after others. I pointed to him and asked his name. He said, Cohen. This, however, I afterward found was not a name, but a title. The Cohen did not remain long, for the light was painful. After his departure I was alone for some time, and at length Alma made her appearance. I sprang to meet her, full of joy, and took her hand in both of mine, and pressed it warmly. She smiled, and appeared quite free from the melancholy of the previous day. We ate our breakfast together, after which we went out into the world of light, groping our way along through the dark passages amid the busy crowd. Alma could see better than I in the darkness, but she was far from seeing well, and did not move with that easy step and perfect certainty which all the others showed. Like me, she was a child of light, and the darkness was distressing to her. As we went on, we were seen by all, but were apparently not considered prisoners. On the contrary, all looked at us with the deepest respect, and bowed low or moved aside and occasionally made little offerings of fruit or flowers to one or the other of us. It seemed to me that we were treated with equal distinction, and if Alma was their queen, I, their guest, was regarded with equal honour. Whatever her rank might be, however, she was to all appearance the most absolute mistress of her own actions, and moved about among all these people with the independence and dignity of some person of exalted rank. At length we emerged into the open air. Here the contrast to the cavern gloom inside gave to the outer world unusual brightness and splendour, so that even under the heavy overarching tree ferns, which had seemed so dark when I was here before, it now appeared light and cheerful. Alma turned to the right and we walked along the terrace, but few people were visible. They shrank from the light and kept themselves in the caverns, then after a few steps we came to the base of a tall half-pyramid, the summit of which was above the tops of the trees. I pointed to this, as though I wished to go up. Alma hesitated for a moment, and seemed to shrink back, but at length, overcoming her reluctance, began the ascent. A flight of stony steps led up. On reaching the top I found it about thirty feet by fifteen wide, with a high stone table in the middle. At that moment, however, I scarce noticed the pyramid summit, 
and I only describe it now because I was fated before long to see it with different feelings. What I then noticed was the vast and wondrous display of all the glories of nature that burst at once upon my view. There was that same boundless sea rising up high toward the horizon, as I had seen it before, and suggesting an infinite extent. There were the blue waters breaking into foam, the ships traversing the deep, the far-encircling shores green in vegetation, the high rampart of ice-bound mountains that shut in the land, making it a world by itself. There was the sun low on the horizon, which it traversed on its long orbit, lighting up all these scenes till the six-month day should end, and the six-month night begin. For a long time I stood feasting my eyes upon all this splendour, and at length turned to see whether Alma shared my feelings. One look was enough. She stood absorbed in the scene, as though she were drinking in deep draughts of all this matchless beauty. I felt amazed at this. I saw how different she seemed from the others, and could not account for it. But as yet I knew too little of the language to question her, and could only hope for a future explanation when I had learned more. We descended at length and walked about the terrace and up and down the side streets. All were the same, as I had noticed before. Terraced streets with caverns on one side, and massive stone structures on the other. I saw deep channels which were used as drains to carry down mountain torrents. I did not see all this at first walk, but I inspected the whole city in many subsequent walks, until its outlines were all familiar. I found it about a mile long, and about half a mile wide, constructed in a series of terraces which rose one above another in a hollow of the mountains round a harbour of the sea. On my walks I met with but few people on the streets, and they all seemed troubled with light. I saw also occasionally some more of these great birds, the name of which I learned from Alma, it was Opcook. For some time my life went on most delightfully. I found myself surrounded with every comfort and luxury. Alma was my constant associate, and all around regarded us with the profoundest respect. The people were the mildest, most gentle and most generous that I had ever seen. The Cohen seemed to pass most of his time in making new contrivances for my happiness. This strange people, in their dealings with me, and with one another, seemed animated by a universal desire to do kindly acts, and the only possible objection against them was their singular love of darkness. My freedom was absolute. No one watched me. Alma and I could go where we chose. So far as I could perceive, we were quite at liberty, if we wished, to take a boat and escape over the sea. It seemed also quite likely that if we had ordered out a galley and a gang of oarsmen, we should have been supplied with all that we might want, in the most cheerful of manner. Such a thought, however, was absurd. Flight! Why would I think of flying? I had long ago lost all idea of time, and here, where it was for the present, perpetual day, I was more at a loss than ever. I supposed that it was somewhere in the month of March, but whether at the beginning or the end I could not tell. The people had a regular system of wake time and sleep time, by which they altered their lives, 
but whether these respective times were longer or shorter than the days and nights at home, I could not tell at that time, though I afterward learned all about it. On the whole, I was perfectly content, nay more, perfectly happy, more so indeed than ever in my life, and quite willing to forget home and friends, and everything in the society of Alma. While in her company there was always one purpose upon which I was most intent, and that was to master the language. I made rapid progress, and while she was absent, I sought out others, especially the Cohen, with whom to practice. The Cohen was always most eager to aid me in every conceivable way, or to any conceivable thing, and he had such a gentle manner, and showed such generous qualities, that I soon learned to regard him with positive affection. Alma was always absent for several hours after I rose in the morning, and when she made her appearance, it was with the face and manner of one who had returned from some unpleasant task. It always took some time for her to regain that cheerfulness, which she usually showed. I soon felt a deep curiosity to learn the nature of her employment and office here, and as my knowledge of the language increased, I began to question her. My first attempts were vain. She looked at me with indescribable mournfulness and shook her head. This, however, only confirmed me in my suspicions that her duties, whatever they might be, were of a painful nature. So I urged her to tell me, and asked her, as well as I could, if I might not share them, or help her in some way. To all this, however, she only returned sighs and mournful looks for an answer. It seemed to me from her manner, and from the general behaviour of the people, that there was no express prohibition on my learning anything doing anything, or going anywhere, and so, after this, I besought her to let me accompany her some time. But this too she refused. My requests were often made, and as I learned more and more of the language, I was able to make them with more earnestness and effect, until at length I succeeded in overcoming her objections. It is for your own sake, said she, that I have refused, Atamor. I do not wish to lessen your happiness, but you must know all soon, and so if you wish to come with me and see what I have to do, why, you may come the next jom. This meant the next day, jom being the division of time corresponding with our day. At this promise I was so full of gratitude that I forgot all about the dark suggestiveness of her words. The next jom I arose sooner than usual, and went forth. I found Alma waiting for me. She looked troubled, and greeted me with a mournful smile. "'You'll find pain in this,' said she. "'But you wish it, and if you still wish it, why, I will take you with me.' At this I only persisted the more, and so we set forth. We went through the cavern passages. Few people were there, all seemed asleep. Then we went out of doors, and came into the full blaze of that day, which here knew no night but prolonged itself into months. For a while Alma stood looking forth between the trees, to where the bright sunlight sparkled to the sea, and then with a sigh, she turned to the left. I followed. On coming to the next portal, she went in. I followed and found myself in a rough cavern, dark and forbidding. Traversing this, we came to an inner doorway, closed with a heavy mat. This she raised, and passed through, while I went in after her. I found myself in a vast cavern, 
full of dim, sparkling lights, which served not to illuminate it, but merely to indicate its enormous extent. Far above rose the vaulted roof, to a height of apparently a hundred feet. Under this there was a lofty half-pyramid with stone steps. All around, as far as I could see in the obscure light, there were niches in the walls, each one containing a figure with a light burning at its feet. I took them for statues. Alma pointed in silence to one of these, which was nearest, and I went up close so as to see it. The first glance that I took made me recoil in horror. It was no statue that I saw in that niche, but a shriveled human form, a hideous sight. It was dark and dried. It was fixed in a sitting posture, with its hands resting on its knees, and its hollow eyes looking forward. On its head was the mockery of a wreath of flowers, while from its heart there projected the handle and half of the blade of a knife which had been thrust there. What was the meaning of this knife? It seemed to tell me of a violent death, yet the flowers must surely be a mark of honour. A violent death with honour and the embalmed remains. These things suggested nothing else than the horrid thought of a human sacrifice. I looked away with eager and terrible curiosity. I saw all the niches, hundreds upon hundreds, all filled with these fearful occupants. I turned again with a sinking heart to Alma. Her face was full of anguish. This is my duty, said she. Every jom I must come here and crown these victims with fresh flowers. A feeling of sickening horror overwhelmed me. Alma had spoken these words and stood looking at me with a face of woe. This, then, was the daily task from which she was wont to return in such sadness, an abhorrent task to her, and one to which familiarity had never reconciled her. What was she doing here? What dark fate was it that thus bound this child of light to these children of darkness? And why was she thus compelled to perform a service from which all her nature revolted? I read in her face at this moment a horror equal to my own, and at the sight of her distress my own was lessened, and there arose within me a profound sympathy and a strong desire to do something to alleviate her misery. This is no place for you, continued Alma. Go and I will soon join you. No, said I, using her language after my own broken fashion. No, I will not go. I will stay. I will help, if you will permit. She looked at me earnestly and seemed to see that my resolution was firmly fixed, and that I was not to be dissuaded from it. Very well, she said. If you do stay and help me, it will be a great relief. With these simple words she proceeded to carry out her work. At the foot of the pyramid there was a heap of wreaths made out of fresh flowers, and these were to be placed by her on the heads of the embalmed corpses. This work, said she, is considered here the highest and most honourable that can be performed. It is given to me out of kindness, and they cannot understand that I can have any other feelings in the performance than those of joy and exultation, here among the dead and in the dark. I said nothing but followed, and watched her, carrying the wreaths and supplying her. She went to each niche in succession, and after taking the wreath off each corpse, she placed a fresh one on, saying a brief formula at each act. By keeping her supplied with wreaths, I was able to lighten her task, so much so that, whereas it usually occupied her more than two hours, on the present occasion it was finished in less than half an hour. 
she informed me that those which she crowned were the corpses of men who had been sacrificed during the present season, by season meaning the six months of light, and that though many more were here, yet they wore crowns of gold. At the end of ten years they were removed to public sepulchres. The number of those which had been crowned by her was about a hundred. Her work was only to crown them, the labour of collecting the flowers and weaving the wreaths, and attending to the lamps being performed by others. I left this place with Alma, sad and depressed. She had not told me why these victims had been sacrificed, nor did I feel inclined to ask. A dark suspicion had come to me that these people, underneath all their amiable ways, concealed thoughts, habits and motives of a frightful kind, and that beyond all my present brightness and happiness there might be a fate awaiting me too horrible for thought. Yet I did not wish to borrow trouble. What I had seen and heard was quite enough for one occasion. I was anxious rather to forget it all. Nor did Alma's words or manner in any way reassure me. She was silent and sad and preoccupied. It was as though she knew the worst, and knowing it, dared not speak, as though there was something more horrible which she dared not reveal. For my part, I feared it, so that I dared not ask. It was enough for me just then to know that my mild and self-denying and generous entertainers were addicted to the abhorrent custom of human sacrifices. End of chapter 9